Good evening uh, again and welcome to RUF. As I mentioned earlier, uh, my name is Nick Bratcher and I am the campus minister for RUF. Uh, I'm glad you have decided to join us this evening. Uh, tonight we're continuing on in our series, Songs That Shape Us. Uh, and as Megan read, uh, we're in Psalm 34 tonight. Uh, while that's being pulled up again, uh, slash not pulled up again, it's fine, you don't have to pull it up again. Uh, it's on your sheet. Uh, I'll remind you that we've called this series Songs That Shape Us because that is what the Psalms are. Uh, they are songs that were meant to be sung by God's people. And as they sang them, God effectively uh, would be giving his people words to describe him and themselves and the world around them. But one of the most remarkable parts about the Psalms is how they reach even deeper than just concepts. They shape our very emotions. They give voice to how we feel in our everyday lives, our heartbreaks, our successes, our fears and desires. In other words, the Psalms are songs for specific occasions, words that God has given us to sing when we feel certain ways, designed to help us process those emotions and to experience these occasions in ways that honor God and glorify our Creator. Last week, we looked at the feeling of despair from Psalm 13 and determined that we can sing through our sorrows uh, because Jesus' death on the cross ensures us that God's favor is toward us. Tonight's psalm, Psalm 34, is a song for doubt. It's a song for doubt. Uh, living in 21st century America, uh, the reality is that we're not really strangers to doubt and skepticism. Uh, studies show that since Richard Nixon, uh, every successive year, Americans actually have grown in their sense of skepticism and suspicion of public officials, particularly any sort of authorities. Uh, just last week, I heard a reporter uh, named, Ma named Miles Parks interviewing college kids on the campus of Drake University in uh, uh, Iowa, yes, about the like voting app problems that happened during the Iowa caucuses. Uh, two girls were debating whether Russia or China was behind the rigged election. Uh, and uh, then when Parks is interviewed, uh, or when Parks interviews this professor at Drake University in uh, Iowa, uh, she makes this comment that people can spin the caucus delays any number of ways. They're like a political Rorschach test. You know, like that psychiatric exam where it's like just an ink blot and you say, like, it looks like a cow or looks like my mom or something, you know, like, uh, if we're honest, sometimes I think all of life feels like a Rorschach test. Nothing can feel very certain. No one seems very trustworthy. Uh, there feels like there's some sort of curtain, uh, some sort of wool that's being pulled over our eyes. And doubt is really indelibly part of the human experience now. We feel acutely the risk to believe in anything. There's a risk inherent in it. And here's the rub, though. Doubt will always cause us to withdraw, right? When we doubt our friends, we tend to withdraw love and relationship from them. When we doubt authorities, we withdraw trust in them. When uh, we, uh, we can, or sorry, we can even withdraw uh, when we doubt, like, objects, right? So think about this. Uh, when you're at a tailgate and you see a brat that's been left out in the sun for maybe like eight or nine hours, 
You know, you're a little suspect of it. You withdraw away from it a little bit, right? Or you see uh, in the milk, your refrigerator, your, the milk in your refrigerator uh, expired the day before today, you know, yesterday. You're like, I don't know. Maybe I'll just throw it away. I don't want to risk it, right? Uh, we withdraw from things that we don't trust. Uh, unfortunately, God is caught up in this withdrawal as well, uh, in this age of skepticism. We all experience temptation to hold God at, at arm's length and to eye him suspiciously and wonder if he really is out for our best interests, if he's really the true God. Uh, some do this uh, because they like to leave their options open, right? Some people do this because they don't want to nail down definitively which God they want to believe in or if they want to believe in God at all. And others of you might actually balk at everything I've said so far. I've never doubted God a day in my life. I, I trust him. I know there's a God. Um, but I would posit to you that, like, uh, all of us to some degree struggle with this. Um, it's just to different varying degrees. Uh, isn't sin fundamentally at its root, like, functional atheism? Isn't it you saying, yeah, I know what God promised to me. I know he's supposed to be good. But you know who I actually want to serve? You know who I think is actually out for my good? Me. Right? So whether you're, you know, full-blown, yeah, I'm an atheist and I believe there's a God, or you have been committed to Christ your whole life, the reality is that we all kind of struggle with doubt. Either way, doubt is a part of our lives. Uh, and the reality is it's just by degrees. Uh, against this backdrop of doubt and skepticism, our psalm tonight invites us to taste and see that the Lord is good. That's in verse 8. So that will actually frame our question for the evening, right? So if we're think, thinking about doubt, uh, and this psalm is inviting us to taste and see that the Lord is good, I want us to ask this question this evening. This is kind of like the, the big question that we'll hang the whole evening on, and it's this. Why do we believe? Why do we believe in God? I believe in God. Uh, we've already read Psalm 34, so I'm actually just going to pray for uh, our time tonight and then jump in. Uh, uh, bow your heads with me. Uh, dear God, uh, as you say in your Psalms, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, and our, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. All right, so let's dive into the passage as we seek to answer our question for tonight. Why do we believe? And uh, keep in mind, uh, it's just too long for me to go verse by verse. So I'm not going to do that to you, I promise. Even though the passage is long, I'll try and keep it, uh, keep it tight here. Okay, so look with me at verses 4 through 7. That's where we're going to start out tonight. Look with me at 4 through 7. Here, David picks up the notion of deliverance, this idea of deliverance. It's first mentioned in verse 4. David says, God delivered him from all his fears. Uh, this is either a reference to the event that David experienced, or it's uh, about the dread itself, right? So it can be a stand-in word that's just describing, like, the experience that David went through, or it can be, like, the fear itself. Uh, fears, oh, yes, and given that David will actually mention, like, the troubles that he's in uh, later in verse 6, this is probably a, a, a nod to, like, the... Uh, the fear itself, the thing that he's experiencing, the emotion that he's experiencing. Uh, and he says, instead of fear, that God gave him peace of mind in the midst of this trial. And the question is, how does this happen? Right? How does this happen? How, uh, how does this deliverance work? Well, uh, David doesn't exactly tell us. 
we can posit a couple of ways. One is that uh, there's a supernatural calm that washes over him. Uh, this would match what First Timothy, or sorry, yes, yeah, Second Timothy uh, one seven says about God that God gives us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self control. Uh, what's more likely, though, uh, instead, is that God delivered David from his fears by giving him assurance of his presence. Uh, if verse 2 is any indication, he looked to God for support and felt assured of his safety. And because of God's presence with him, uh, he, um, he felt safe. Uh, just as Moses is, and, th- and we know this because in verse 2, he, uh, he says that uh, the people who do this kind of thing, their faces shine, right? Uh, this is just like Moses' face that shines when he sees God in Exodus 34, And this is the same assurance that's uh, rehearsed by Joshua and Caleb in Numbers 14. They say this, the Lord is with us. Do not fear them about the Canaanites there on the other side in the promised land. Uh, The great match for anxiety, for worrying about things over which we feel powerless, is knowing the God under which all forces are subject. If God is for David, who can be against him? Uh, But what about that mention of troubles in verse 6? Well, we're told in verses 6 and 7, that the Lord saved him out of his difficult circumstances. In verse 7, this deliverance is attributed to an angel of the Lord. Uh, all that means, so in the Old Testament, there's actually this motif of an angel of the Lord. And uh, in, in Genesis 16, it's actually just the Lord himself. Uh, usually that's kind of a typical way of talking about God's presence. Uh, he comforts Hagar in Genesis 16, and it's this angel of the Lord. God's presence then is said to have rescued David from the hands of a foreign king. That's the situation that spurs this psalm is David is, uh, has gotten out of this horrible, horrible situation where he actually has to act like a, like a madman who foams at the mouth. And the king is like, this guy's no threat to me, so I'll just let him go. And out of thankfulness, he sings this psalm. Uh, he writes this psalm. And to boil this all down, uh, God delivers David from his emotions of fear and the circumstances which cause them, right? So on the one hand, he's saying this, uh, that the fear that I had, uh, God answered, uh, that he delivered me from it. And also the situation I was in, God delivered me from it. And so here's, the, here's our, our first answer to the question, why do we believe we believe because God delivers us from our fears and troubles, right? God delivers us from our fears and troubles, uh, both the, the fear itself and uh, the situations we're in. And here's the kicker. Uh, God will do the same thing for you if you place your faith in him. Uh, while this psalm was true for the immediate context of David's deliverance from a conspiring king, it was never meant to only stop there. It wasn't, it wasn't meant to only apply to David. Instead, the fact that this has become a psalm means that God's people were meant to sing these words. And as Israel would be singing this, it takes on even greater and deeper truth. Right? God who rescued his people out of Egypt, uh, God who led them across the Red Sea on dry ground, has invited his, uh, his people to investigate his promise to be with them to see that he is encamped close around them, close around all those who fear him. This is not a one-off, like, kind of lucky moment for David that God, you know, spared his life. 
God has asked all his people to sing these words in their circumstances. And the reality is this, how much louder should we be singing? Right? If this is what David can say, how much louder should we be singing? Uh, and this, this should answer that doubt. Um, I'll say this to you about the, the structure of the passage. Um, you'll notice that this is a, a psalm of praise, right? That this is a psalm that is dedicated to just boasting about how good the Lord is. Um, it might seem weird to ask a question about doubt and belief to a psalm that says that. But because David's been delivered from his circumstances, he's telling us tonight, Uh, all these reasons why uh, God is good, why he is trustworthy. He's trying to answer the thing in us that doesn't want to sing along with him. He's inviting us to do it instead. Um, And so we can uh, look like David backwards, and we have all the more reason to look backwards and say, wow, uh, look what God has done, and look how committed he is to us. The reality is that Jesus died on the cross for us. Uh, He is committed to us with his own blood. Um, He is actually, you could argue, more invested in how your life turns out than you are. And so uh, this is the answer to skepticism. Uh, This is the answer to our reluctance to trust God is that, man, he is uh, so ready to be in your corner. Uh, Some of you are facing situations in school, uh, money or relationships, uh, where God uh, might not scoop you out of hot water, though, right? So some of you hear this, and you're like, wait, so he's going to deliver me from my troubles. Does that mean that my, like, biology grade is going to somehow get canceled? Or uh, I took a test earlier today. Does that mean that, like, uh, the professor is going to, like, accidentally, like, f- lose it down the toilet or something? Uh, God will miraculously always show up to, like, save me in the nick of time. Um, the reality is this. Maybe you know this, uh, uh, but that's... Um, that even, even if that were to happen, like even if you were to have a situation where, you know, your, to- your test gets lost or something like that, right, that that won't ultimately deliver you from everything, right? Because then there's going to be another test. There's going to be another time. There's going to be another relationship. There's going to be another problem. Uh, really, uh, that deep and satisfying deliverance that we're talking about is what, Ra- what Paul talks about in Romans 8.28 and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. In the end, whether in this life or the next, God is going to deliver you from this present circumstance, right? He might let it play out. Um, you know, for some Christians around the world, God lets things play out even unto death. And yet, uh, this verse is a promise, and, and God will make good on it. Uh, Jesus' says, resurrection is the down payment of this that even that will work well for them, that, it's, that he is working for their good, even in death. Um, Tim Keller famously puts it like this, uh, in Christ, God will only give you what you would ask for if you knew what he knows. That's a little bit of a mouthful, but I'll say it again, right? Uh, yeah, sorry, I'm say this right. Yes, okay, in Christ, God will only give you what you would ask for if you knew what he knows. So God ultimately delivers us from the difficult situations of life, uh, both our fear of them and also uh, in them ultimately, even in death. But what about uh, the things that are good? How, what's God's relationship? So he's only there to like be a catch-all or a safety net? Uh, no, not at all. Look with me at verses 9 through 10. As David moves forward in penning the psalm, 
it's only natural uh, that he moves from his moment of deliverance to uh, recognition of God's sovereignty and goodness in all of life, right? To an even deeper point that God is good in all circumstances, bad and good. In verse 9, David says this most plainly, offering the wisdom uh, that's oft repeated in uh, wisdom literature, like in Proverbs 1, that uh, we ought to fear the Lord. Uh, Now, when I say fear the Lord, some of you are like, okay, so I should be afraid to get zapped or something like that. Um, you might think of like a, like a panic, but this isn't like the fear that he said earlier, right? So he said that God delivered him from his fears, and now he's telling you to fear. So what does he mean by this? What, what fear does he mean? Well, uh, in the Bible, when we talk about fearing God, we mean uh, a, a posture of awe. Uh, it's an acknowledgement that all of one's life is lived before the face of God, right? That's, that's a posture of fear is that you recognize that it's not just moments of trial where God cares, but even in your moments of victory, even in your greatest uh, you know, feats, that you are under God's watchful and tender gaze. Uh, for those who welcome this watchfulness and who center their lives on this reality that God is the giver of life and all things, David says, there is no lack. Uh, encouraging us again to believe in this good God, that there is no lack. He sets out to paint a picture of this promise as he describes young lions. So he he, kind of does a little bit of poetic moment here and talks about some young lions. The reason he picks those uh, young lions as a picture is this, twofold. One, the lion uh, in this day was considered to be basically the most powerful creature on earth, right? It could could have its share of prey. It probably would never go hungry. Um, So he picks that creature to personify something, somebody who could always get food if, if they wanted it, could always provide for themselves on their own. And then he says, does one better. He says, not just any lion, but the young lions. Age might creep in over time for an older lion, and they might skip a meal or two. Uh, but not, not so with a young lion. Of all God's creatures, young lions have the greatest chance at Uh, giving themselves whatever they want, uh, all good things. But uh, this drives home the full force of his argument, that the one creature on earth that is more, that is most responsible and most capable of meeting its own needs is not as well taken care of as a human being who seeks the Lord. Right, that a, that a lion who is totally self-sufficient and capable of meeting its own needs, that it is not as well taken care of as someone who seeks the Lord. And this is our answer to our second question, why do we, uh, sorry, our second answer to the question, why do we believe? Uh, we believe because, because God provides all that is good. We believe because God provides all that is good. So our two answers to review so far, God delivers us from fears and troubles, and God delivers all that is good. In 2013, uh, at the University of Nebraska, uh, their spring football game, a seven-year-old boy by the name of, name of Jack Hoffman took the field. Uh, Jack was battling brain cancer at the time, uh, so he's on like a My Wish uh, kind of um, trip, and he had an inoperable brain tumor, actually. And uh, if you go back and look at the, the clip, as he suits up and he runs out on the field with uh, these University of Nebraska players, like he doesn't even come up to the hip 
of like most of them. He's this little tiny guy on the field, a little blip. Um, at the end of the game, on the last play of the game, they put Jack in. He's got number 22 emblazoned on his chest. He's running in. And he lines up at, at running back. And they snap the ball. You know, quarterback hands it off to the running back, this little, little Jack guy. And he immediately starts running the wrong way, like just runs straight like away from all the big guys. And the quarterback has to literally like grab his like horse collar, like the shoulder pads, and like turn him back around and like starts running with him. And of course, you know, you, you can guess what happens, right? The like defense is just like falling all over the place and like a big wedge, basically like all like 11 players on offense form this big wedge around Jack and they just start like bumbling down the field. And 69 yards later, Jack scores a touchdown. And all these, like immediately he's put on the shoulders like the biggest, tallest guy. And they're all just like rejoicing and hanging and like getting so excited. And uh, the reality is that's who we are, right? We are like Jack. Uh, we um, might run and uh, go get a touchdown, but uh, how much work did Jack really do? I mean, if we're really honest, this sounds sad, but it's true. Uh, like, how much work did Jack do to get the touchdown? He scored it, sure. Like, forever and ever, number 22, uh, this kid named Jack is on the record books as scoring a touchdown for the University of Nebraska. But uh, the reality is, how much of that should he take credit for? Um, this comes with good and bad news. That, this is, that Jack Hoffman is us comes with the good and bad news. The bad news is this. There's really no room for pride in the Christian life, right? Uh, you don't earn the good things that come to you in life. Uh, the fact that you have clothes on your back, um, shoes on your feet, friends, social skills, food to eat, uh, whatever you value, uh, for the Christian, we know that it comes from God's providence, from his goodness to us, not from our impressiveness, not from our resume, uh, but here's the good news. That's way better than that bad news, because uh, that might hurt your feelings a little bit, but let me, let me give you the good news. The game is fixed, and you will score a touchdown. Like, that's what we're promised, that you're not defined by your successes, the people you impress, the money you acquire, none of it. Uh, you can't be because it's not yours, right? You can't be defined by the touchdown you score because the psalmist and God are t- is trying to tell us that, like, you don't really score it, that it's all in his hands, that he gives it to you freely because he loves you. Uh, You lack no good thing. God's not holding back his best for you, and you don't have to strive to get it. Um, This is most evident uh, in the fact that God the Father does not spare his own son to justify us from our sins, right? Uh, You can't do anything to earn that gift, and it's the greatest gift you could get, right? Uh, Maybe God won't give you like every desire of your heart, but he will again give you all good things. And the, the best thing is this. Uh, Paul writes this in Ephesians 2. God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Again, no room for boasting, and yet plenty of room for celebrating. Uh, In the face of doubt and uncertainty about God's goodness, this passage claims the exact opposite about God, that he is the giver of all good things you possess, from your shoelaces to your salvation. 
So God delivers and provides for us freely out of his grace. But here's a question straight from, from my own skeptical heart. Why? Right? So he's, he, he gives us these good things. He delivers and provides for us if we put our faith in him. And the, the question I always have is why? Why would God do this for us? If we're really just leeches on a system with nothing to offer God but his own provisions that he gave us, uh, and we need him to deliver us, why would God enter into a relationship like that? It seems maybe too good to be true. Look with me at Psalm 34, uh, 19 through 22. Look at the, the last few verses here. Here the psalmist reiterates and sums up our first point, that God delivers the righteous in verse 19, even as present circumstances may worsen, right? Like I said, uh, things might not get better. Not everything is going to turn out the way you want them to, but that doesn't mean that they ultimately will get, they won't get better. Uh, and then he also tells us that God provides good for the righteous in verse 21, as the wicked meet their doom, but the righteous are upheld by God. But I want to pause for a moment and focus more in on verse 22. There, God is said to redeem the life of his servants. Um, John Stott, which is a biblical uh, study uh, theologian and doctor of the church, uh, says this about redemption. Redemption means deliverance by payment of a price. Um, and particularly, uh, this redemption by means of a price of, of payment uh, would happen a lot in uh, slave trade. Uh, that it was particularly applied to the ransoming of slaves, that you would buy back a slave uh, when they changed ownership. And that would, that would redeem the slave. Uh, sometimes you would actually, um, if somebody in your family entered into slavery, in order to uh, get them out of it, you would actually redeem them. You would pay a ransom and then they would be set free uh, from their owner. Uh, what the psalmist is driving at, right, as he, as he closes here in verse 22, uh, is this notion that God's people at their core are servants who have been bought back from another master, from another owner. And of course, David doesn't fully know it yet, but uh, what it will cost to, uh, to accomplish this, right? David... Uh, is aware that um, he is impure, that he has served other owners, that he has served other gods, uh, and yet God has made a way in the sacrificial system for him to be cleansed. But he doesn't quite know why bulls or goats are what God uh, takes as cleansing him. Um, we do. We know what that was. It was a picture of the Jesus, the Messiah, the, good, the only good and perfect sacrifice to come. Um, as David sought refuge beneath the covenant of slaughtered bulls and goats, we now seek our refuge in Jesus, in his life, death, and resurrection, in his love for us that's displayed on the cross uh, and his raising up from the grave that brought us our redemption. Jesus denied himself so that we wouldn't face the denial of the Father. And this is our third answer to the question, why do we believe? Uh, why do we believe we believe, because God, we believe because God has redeemed us in love. We believe because God has redeemed us in love. So our three answers for tonight, God delivers us. We believe because God delivers us from fears and troubles. God provides all that is good, and God redeems us in love. Uh, to the skeptical heart, I encourage you to preach that to yourself, uh, to examine this psalm again and again, and to imbibe deeply of it.
Um, and of course, what this redemption means is this, uh, that while you might attempt uh, to withdraw from God in your doubt, uh, you will wind up serving something else, right? That there's no such thing as an indifferent posture toward God. Uh, everyone worships something, right? The, the claim that this is making, that you can be redeemed, that you can be bought from slavery, means that you have another master if it is not God. Uh, everyone worships something. In 2005, the American writer and philosopher David Foster Wallace gave a commencement speech at Kenyon College uh, on this very subject, and he wrote this about it. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type of worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. They're not good masters. Uh, Anything else will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when the time and age start showing, you die a million slow deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, you will feel weak and afraid your whole life. And you will, uh, you will need ever more power uh, over others to keep that fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid most of the time. A fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. These are your options uh, in a posture of doubt, right? These are the, the reality in a posture of doubt is this, that as we hold God at bay, we move toward something else. Uh, the truth is that uh, there is no such thing as true, uh, pure atheism. We're not capable of indifference uh, when it comes to worship. We will place our faith in something or someone and serve it with our lives. But here's the deal. It doesn't have to eat you alive. Your God doesn't have to eat you alive. He doesn't. The real God who delivers us from fears and troubles provides all that is good and redeems us in love. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, wants to meet you in your place of doubt. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's pray.